brought to you with the natural goodness of Viridian Nutrition, available at Browns. I am Trudy Kerr and welcome to The Interviewer. In this series I talk to artists, campaigners, men and women of influence, musicians, performers and anyone who shapes the fabric of our society. Today I am talking to a wild character of a photographer and a guest back on the show for a second time. As colourful and sometimes as controversial as his images, René Rosignol made his name as a photographer in conflict zones around the world. And he's also well known as a photographer shooting the stars at the International MTV Awards and famous personalities from all over the globe. René is also, and I have to mention this again, the man behind the flying fish of the 2019 storm video that was seen by millions around the world. However, René has been in the news over the past few weeks as he reported on the front line of the war in Ukraine. René and I chatted a few weeks ago as he headed out of Kiev on a refugee bus just as the sirens went off to warn of an imminent attack. Thankfully, René, you're still here and obviously we're going to be talking and discussing what and the why and the how, but you're okay. I think so. Not bad. Yeah, you look good. You look just fine. You, you look like you're asking, asking for an invitation there. But first up, we want to talk about the what, the why, the how. Let's start off with the where. Where did you go? Um, so I crossed into Ukraine from uh, Poland and then went up to Lviv, Kiev, Bucha, Irpin, Belarus border and then down to the Russian border. So a little bit of everywhere. Time was limited because I didn't have much time to travel because I have other work commitments over here. So, yeah, that was it. But you were right on the front line then. You were right where the action was happening. Let's put it this way. I went to the places where the front line had been 10 days before me. Then when we moved to the front line, that is the borders of Belarus and Russia. Okay. So, looking at this is the where. Looking at the how. How on earth? You talked about the fact you had a, a limited amount of time to fit this in. Yeah within your work, and we'll talk about the why in a minute, but how did this happen? How does somebody decide that they're going to get on the front line of the war in Ukraine? How do you decide to do that? Well, when the war started, immediately the next day I wanted to go, but I couldn't because I had commitments. I had other jobs, I had weddings. We'll get to the weddings later because I had a few worried brides, obviously. Um, yeah, but the moment I had a seven, eight day slot, I just left. In fact, when I left, it's just a one-way ticket. You know, there's no return tickets when you go to these things. It's Why are there no return? I don't understand. Why are there no return tickets? Because it's useless paying your ticket if you're going to come back in a box. You know, they're gonna, no joking apart. You never know how long it's going to take you to come to come back out. If it's you know, you get stuck there, you get maybe detained, arrested, or or kidnapped. You know, you never know. So it's useless booking your return ticket unless you're actually at the airport. Okay. But this is a standard in war. You know, unless you go there and you have everything perfectly planned and you have like permits from every possible person on earth that you're going to go in on this date and come out on this date, then you have a return flight. But okay. it's useless having a return flight when you're going in on your own. So if, <clears throat> I mean, there's not many people that are going to, to turn around and say, I'm going to go to, to a war zone. You're one of the few that would choose to do that. But from a practical point of view, if somebody decided, I'm going to, like yourself, decided I'm going to go, yeah. I'm going to report on what's happening in the war in Ukraine, 
How, I mean, how, where do you start? How, do you, how does this happen? I'm assuming that not everybody can do this. How, do you know people that, that would assist you to get to the places or you no. just jump on a bus and go? You jump on a bus and you go. So the, the first thing is Google Maps. That's how it starts. So you start on Google Maps and you start spotting all the locations where you're going to cross from. And then there's the plan B. There's always a plan B. If you're not allowed to cross through the border, for maybe you have an issue with your passport or if it's a war, they won't let journalists cross in, then your plan B is finding your way in across a different border by walk. So that would be the plan in Libya, for example. So Libya wasn't accepting any foreigners crossing into the country. So you had to walk from Egypt all the way to Libya, to the desert, you know, for like many, many hours until you actually get in and then you find somebody to give you a, a lift or, you know, you go on these pickups. And this is what we spoke about last time that I interviewed yeah. with you. We but last we... time there was no cameras, it was just voice. Okay, yes, yes, I'm sorry about the cameras. <laughs> you're getting better, now there's cameras too. <laughs> I know, you're upset about the cameras, but coming back to the how, so you, you choose these places on Google Maps, you say, that's where I want to go, that's where the action is, that's yeah. where I want to report. So you'd be following, obviously, CNN, Al Jazeera, and all these other bigger stations who have their journalists on actually every front line. And you start taking notes, I'm, I, I'm taking notes, okay, I need to go to Irpin, I need to go to this street in Irpin, I have to go to Bucha, I need to see these um, mass graves in Bucha. So then basically once you have them all marked on Google Maps, you know where you want to go. Once you cross into the country, you start getting closer to the areas on your own. So that's buses, taxis, lifts, trains, whatever you find. Um, the good thing about Ukraine is that the trains are still operating normally. Although there's many delays, some of them 8 hours, 12 hours long, just waiting in the, in the train station. Um, but at least they're still working. Once you get as close as possible, so I got to Kiev, and from then onwards, you start finding fixers. So fixers are people who are basically out of a job because of the war, mm -hmm. and then they become fixers. What is a fixer? He picks you up from the hotel, he knows the places to go, he knows the passwords. For example, in Ukraine, um, the security, the checkpoints need passwords to move forward. The passwords change every day. Yeah, there's all these little it's stupid things, but you know. But you, you don't know these fixers before you arrive. How do you find these people? Let, let, let's be fair. Um, about three months ago, actually four months ago, I went to, um, to Kiev before the war started. And I went to photograph uh, Chernobyl. You may have seen some photos on my social yeah, yeah. media. And this was a coincidence. Yeah. But let's put it this way. I made lots of friends and contacts on the ground. So I remained in contact with the company who does these tours. I wanted to take my own photography class over there to Chernobyl. Then the war broke out, obviously, but I was still in contact with these people. And I told them, listen, I need fixers. And uh, this girl, Julia, she helped me find people on the ground. But then there's also a Facebook page for all the journalists working within Ukraine. And everybody's posting, I need a fixer in, in, uh, in, um, in Bucha. I need a fixer in Kiev. I need a fix. You know what I mean? And everyone's suggesting people who they've used before, so you know it's safe. If, for example, CNN have used this fixer, you know, one, he's going to be safe, he's going to be good, but he's going to be expensive. Okay. Right? So you start making your contacts in this way. But you mentioned CNN, for instance, and yeah. I'm assuming CNN being such a large news Oh, it's outlet. ridiculous. I can tell you so many stories about them and Sky News. You know, when you see this, I was in Libya again, you see the Sky News guy moving around. He had four armored trucks. Which is exactly what I was coming to. They have the security yeah. with them. I, right? I crossed into Libya on my own with 200 euros in my pocket for an indefinite amount of time. You know, so that's a huge, huge difference. When CNN were, they're staying in the same hotel I stayed in in, in Kiev, by the way. 
And it's hilarious because they had their own security, their own translators, their own medic, you know. And okay, they had armed men with them. I had the armed men as well, but that's the fixer. Right, because that's what I was going to ask you about security. Did you have security? You'd expect CNN or Sky to have security. Yeah. But did Rene Rosignon, did you have security? Well, I did, but I always had my own weapons too. So oh, that's a Lord. bit of a different story. You'd see other journalists without any weapons. Um, now, okay, journalists don't need weapons because you're there to cover your own story. But I don't trust anyone. Since this is my fifth war, um, you could say almost six, but let's say fifth because one wasn't an actual war, it was a revolution. Um, I wouldn't trust people. When you have your own weapons, you speak a different language. Can I ask you, what weapons are we talking about here? What are, what are you referring to? We're looking at, for example, a CZ 9mm um, handgun. We're looking at an AK-47, a Kalashnikov. That's the type of weapons which you would move around. And you're walking zone. around with these on you as well? If we had a Kalashnikov in the car with us all the time, which I could use at any time I want. And I had a 9mm constantly with me. Wow. So this really is you putting yourself into a situation where you may need to pick up a gun and defend yourself against whoever comes towards yeah, you. Yeah, but it's, I, I feel it's normal. Uh, you, you look at it like a wow factor. You know, it's just your own, it's your, it's your insurance. Of course. You know, you need to remember that in a war zone, okay, now again, Ukraine's a bit different. I'll tell you why. In a war zone, there's no credit cards, there's no banks, there's no AT. You can't withdraw money, you can't pay anything, you need cash. So when you go to a war zone, you're moving around with maybe one or two thousand euros cash in your pocket. You've got a backpack on your back with 30, 40,000 euros of equipment. Anyone can just point a little, even an air pistol towards your head and take everything you have with you. You understand that? There's no insurance that's going to cover you for this type of loss. So your insurance in a place like that is your own weapons. So you just mentioned, of course, you said there's no cash machines or anything in the Ukraine. I assume that that is because of the war, the situation that it is at yeah. the moment, and the whole infrastructure of the, the country yeah. has fallen. Let me rephrase for a second. I said in a war zone, there's no banks, there's no way, not, nothing works. But in Ukraine, it's a bit different. For example, I found a five-star hotel and I paid in a card with card. Okay. You know, but ATMs are all empty. There's no money in them. I went to a train station in Kiev, which is literally almost um, the front line, you know, and you could pay train tickets with card, with your card still. So certain things are still working, which is very different from a normal war zone. Yeah. Um, but if you go back to Libya, Gaza, ATMs don't work. <laughs> they don't exist. So it's all about the cash. How do you protect yourself with that cash? Your own weapons. Simple. Before we get to the what, so what you've seen. I want to ask you once again, I've asked you this before, and I'm gonna ask you again, why? Why would you put yourself in that position? Why would you go to Libya or to Gaza? Why, we, we've talked before on this show yeah, about simple. you being why not? kidnapped. Well, no, really, it's not why a not? question of why not. Of course it's it is. not what Bob or Mary might decide to do on a Saturday afternoon. I know, I'm gonna to go to the front line of the Ukraine war. Why, what makes you, why does René Rosignol have to go and do this? So this, I'm going to put it into two different categories, okay? The first category, which I'll talk about at the end, is COVID, which has got nothing to do with the war itself, but it's COVID. It's what COVID has done to me and to many artists around the world. Let's go back to the why, who I am. This is what I do. I've been doing it since I was 18 or 19 years old in my first war back in, in Gaza, and it took off. You know, I've been a photojournalist since I was 17 years old, 
and being a normal photographer is boring. You know, you don't just take photos of people shaking hands and just, you need to be different, you need to be out there. And people recognize you because you're doing something different. So that's photography-wise. But what gives you a buzz in life? Let's be honest. You know, you need to feel alive. And to feel alive, you have to feel close to death. It's simple. That is the, this is the actual truth. You know, when you're close to death, which I, I need to admit because some people say, oh my God, you're mad. And I never was close to death in Ukraine. It was safe. But there's the problems which you cannot see. There's the Russian separatists which are roaming around Kiev with, with machine guns and they just start shooting at people and you can never know who's who because they look like Ukrainians. That is the biggest problem Ukrainian um, army have at the moment. That's why all the checkpoints, all the questions. Then you have missiles. You know, the moment you've seen a missile coming towards you, you're dead. It's too late. And you cannot understand or know where they're going to land. So, so, but really, is it really just about the buzz? You mean, you mean you're talking about it being the buzz and making you feel alive? Buzz. And it, Look. There has to be more to it than no, that. No, no, it is showing the world what's going on. Right. So that is the base of everything. But at the same time, you feel alive by doing it. I cannot feel alive by shooting the prime minister or president, shaking their hands to people in the country. You know, that's what I've done for the majority of the beginning of my photojournalistic life. You know, you get ministers opening pavements, projects. It's, 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 it's ridiculous. You know, that's not what a photojournalist is meant to do. This is photojournalism. Photojournalism takes you to places where people cannot go. And you are showing them what's on the ground. Now, let's put it this way. I've seen journalists go in there within two weeks before me. And I've seen nothing online. Just articles and stories and... In fact, you just shook your head at me. You didn't even know what the journalist went there before me. Maltese journalist. Nothing. It means my social media was so powerful that it went viral. I've had 100,000 views on videos on its own, which is incredible. You post some photos, I had 300 shares. It's incredible the response I've got. Why? Because you are, not because it's me, it could be anyone, but because you are portraying what is on the ground. You know what I mean? It's not just going there, taking photos and writing some text. We saw this, we did this. No, you're actually, your feet are on the hole where, which was blown up 48 hours before me. There's bodies laying everywhere. You're grabbing your phone and you're doing a live video on Facebook. And people could relate to that. That is what the people want to see, what the media doesn't actually show them. You know, there's so much lies that go along. And I've seen so many... Um, interviews that um, it's all lies that it's not true that Russia's not bombing and all that it's mad of course they are but then there's the exaggeration of the media you know they say that Butch has been flattened and Irpin is non-existent it's all bullshit you know yeah of course there's many blocks of flats which have been bombed there's two three roads in the villages which are flattened of course but the rest of the village is normal you know and that is what you need to try and show through the photography I've showed I didn't just show death and the destruction, I've showed people. I've showed the faces, I've shown people buying in the markets, and markets are still open in a war zone. You know, so I try to show um, the value of what war actually is. That you can have a war going on in Republic Street in Valletta, but you can be in the center of Floriana having a coffee. But this is storytelling. This, you know? is, this is you un unraveling and unveiling a story, because you're telling one side and you're telling the other. You're saying this is... This is the worst of it, and this is the reality of how people are living there. Yeah. So this is your motivation, is to reveal a story. Yeah, and at the same time, you're having... I mean, you cannot say you're having a good time, because war is not a good time. Let's not put that out there, like, oh my God, it's such a buzz. 
it is adrenaline, yes, for sure. And what is weird about me is that I feel alive in these situations. I feel that's where I shine. That's where I can push myself to be who I am. It's not about the buzz, because you cannot have a buzz by seeing death and destruction. Let's put that clear into people's mm -hmm, heads, mm -hmm. right? But if you have a passion for something, and this is the place to do it. Simple. Well, you mentioned some stories there where you said, talking about the markets being open and people going into markets and, and trying to get on with living some sort of normality. So let's come to the what. What did you see? What did you reveal? And you just mentioned that other photographers, other journalists haven't. What, what was real, the real crux of what you were you seeing in, in Kiev and the other places that you visited? Well, what I was seeing is that in many places life goes on as normal, which is very, very weird. For example, Lviv, okay, it's 800 kilometers um, to the west. So it's a little bit far away, but life is going on as normal. You've got all the um, American chain food open everywhere. You know, you've got people running in the streets, you have coffee shops open, it's life as normal. As if, as if there's nothing happening. There's nothing happening. It's like you're walking down the public streets uh, on a Monday afternoon, it's life as normal. Then you get on the train and you arrive in Kiev. And Kiev, although life is going on as normal, most of the restaurants are closed. It's only the locals who know where to go for that. The bread, the toast, the little things, you know. But still life is going on as normal. There's checkpoints every five kilometers. There's lots of military presence everywhere, but that's about it. But it's, it's, it's extremes, you know? Then you move up to Bucha, Irpin, and it's, it's war. It's a total different extreme. But what are you seeing in these areas that haven't, you mentioned that, that haven't been reported, that haven't been seen, that you saw? What, what does this war look like? Because I don't think we understand. We are being fed media. And as you mentioned before, there are some people saying that this isn't even happening. Yeah. What, what, what is the reality of this? What are you seeing? You know, what war, did you see? The war is happening. It's obvious that it's happening. And people are dying every day. And by the thousands. You know? How? How are they dying? They're being shot on the streets. Simple. You know, the stories that I've heard and I've seen with my own eyes, because you cannot just relay on what people say. You know, when you're in a war, you have to actually see it happening. So you've seen, I've seen with my own eyes um, families who were locked in in basements for days and days and days. And then after 10, 12 days, they get hungry. <laughs> they need to come out, they need to get food. And then they're shot on the streets because they're roaming the streets because there's a curfew. Right? Shot, obviously, by Russians. Yeah, then you get in the media and say, no, the Ukrainians shot them. <laughs> you know, but why would Ukrainians shoot Ukrainians? It doesn't make sense. So... In journalism, they use always the term, for example, CNN cannot independently verify, blah, blah, blah. I cannot independently verify, verify who shot the people on the ground. Yeah, it's obvious, because I wasn't there when they were shot. I'm mm -hmm. seeing bodies. So I am, no, I am no crime investigator. That's why the French president, as you know, sent his French team in, and they were um, unearthing all the mass graves and doing all the research, how they were killed and, and whatnot. But I've heard so, so many stories, you know. Stories like what? I mean... Oh, simple. Like, for example, um, the father said, like, I need to go out and get food for my family. Simple. He went out. He got shot on his front porch. After 10 days laying on the ground, the dog started eating him because the dogs are obviously always hung get hungry as well. And then the Russians were scared that, um, listen, we're going to have sickness. There's a smell. So they dig the mass graves and they put all the bodies in the mass graves, cover them in soil, and it's like <laughs> back to business. That is what the French are doing at the moment. They're opening these mass graves, bringing the bodies out and seeing 
how these people were shot, shot in the head, shot you know, with their hands tied up at times. So, and it sounds like, from what you've been reporting on, that there really isn't any discrimination. You showed a, a photograph of a van that had children yeah, written yeah. on the front of that, and it was absolutely shot to bits. I think you said like something like 500 bullet Not holes. Easily a thousand bullets just in one side of the bus. And this, this bus had white flags all over it. It had children on the front, children on the back, children on the side, written in clear red paint. Um, they were trying to escape Bucha. And basically, as they came to the, to the Russian checkpoint, the car was shot. I mean, not just shot, but blown to bits. There were still body parts inside the car. And some other people tell me, okay, but why didn't you post any body parts? It's not my job to do. I don't take credit. I don't take, um, how, what do you say? How do you, how do you even say these things? So let's say a photo became, oh my God, wow, look at this photo. Why should I post photos of body parts? It's ridiculous. People ask me, do you have body parts? Post them. No, you don't post these things. It's someone's life. It's kids blown to fucking bits. It's insane. But people want to see them. That's sick. You know, you don't have to shoot these things. <laughs> Just leave them be. It, it, it's there. You, you shoot shots of the bus. You get shots of the teddy bear maybe with blood on it, which it's, it's actually there. But that's enough. You know, but you did show me photographs of, of something I couldn't even really distinguish that you yeah. said were bodies that you had found. Yeah, yeah because, burned. OK, so um, Ukrainian bodies have been removed uh, a few days before I arrived or the majority of bodies. But how do you remove body parts when they're everywhere? It's it's grim. This is war. And um, in one road alone, I witnessed over 70 tanks blown up Russian tanks blown up all from the road from Kiev going um, I think it was west towards Lviv almost going upwards towards Bucha just a whole road of exploded um, tanks one next to the other and my fixer I said um, were they clean he goes well the bodies were removed but if it's burned bodies half bodies body parts you you, you cannot remove them so before this interview started I showed you um, a soldier and it makes no difference if the soldier is Russian, Ukrainian. It makes no difference. It's a soldier. And it's burnt to bits. It's headless. It's shot so many times in the chest. And this is an issue. Because it's an issue in the sense of his parents will never know who yeah. he is. It's impossible to find out who this body is. He would just be a number. So, for example, some people say Russia have lost 40,000 soldiers. Russia says it's only 3,000. You know, Ukraine says no, it's 50,000. There's all this battle of numbers. Mm. And nobody will have the exact number. But when you look inside these tanks, the bodies are still there. No one's going to recover these bodies because these tanks are melted. So you have an aluminium um, bottom tank which has melted. So the aluminium has melted. So where's the bodies? Can you imagine that? The bodies will never ever be found. The family, whether they are Russian or Ukrainian, will never have a funeral. They will never be at peace. So this is the grim side of it, from something which really impressed me personally. Now, as you know, I've seen war, I've seen death, I've seen kids blown to bits in Gaza, I've seen um, hangars full of um, African uh, migrants with heads cut off because they were fighting a war. This is what I've seen. This is all war crimes. Have I ever seen bodies melted to the ground? No. So this is something new for me. And 
I remind people who are seeing this video, yes, it's uh, some people say it's Russia, it's bad, they're killing people. Yeah. But it's still someone's family member. Yeah, let's remember that they have a job to do and they are doing the job because they are made to do it, they are told to do it, they are being paid to do it. Many of these soldiers, 16, 17, 18 year olds, they have no freaking idea what they're doing. This is why all these cases of rape, all these cases of family cars being shot at, you put kids on the front line with AK-47s, Kalashnikovs, and they're told you shoot at anything that moves. You know, that's what they do. Why is this happening, Rene? You, I know there's a whole political answer to this and there's a whole, you know, strategic and, and the right answer, so on. But you've seen it. You've yeah. seen what's happening. Why is this happening? Why? I, I, I cannot answer this myself. It's not, my, it's not my department. You know, but there's been big mistakes by both sides. There's big mistakes from Russia. There's also big mistakes from Ukraine. You know, if you had to ask me a personal view, Ukraine are fighting an American war on their ground. That is my personal view. It doesn't mean I'm right. What does that mean, an American war? It means that NATO have no need to be there. You know, NATO keep getting closer, closer, closer to Russia. And 15 years ago, there was an, an, an American um, senator who said, like, listen, we cannot keep moving west. Uh, we cannot keep moving east. The more we move east, the more we're going to piss off Russia. Eventually, he's going to let loose. And this is what ha what's happening. You know, this is, again, my personal opinion. Of course. Um, I read a lot and I study a lot about wars and about political affairs. But maybe I'm biased to what I read. Again, here I'm not sticking up for Russia because Russia is having a massacre of people on the Ukrainian side. But this is war. And I believe this is like when a couple are separating. You know, there's like you see a woman and a man, they're always happy together. Then suddenly, boom, they're separating and they're at war. And then suddenly all the friends get involved, all the family get involved and it gets worse. Because when family and friends get involved, things get worse. The same thing. So many people are now getting involved trying to help and things just get worse. You know? And you can never fix things. When a wife and a husband, for example, cheat on each other, just this is an example, you know. So Putin feels cheated on because of an agreement which was done many years back. You can never fix things. But the truth is always somewhere in between. So the wife said, oh, he's done this to me. And the husband said, no, he's done this to me. The truth is always somewhere in between. Someone is always a bit right on both sides of the picture. Yeah. But again, war is not the answer. It's an incredible analogy and it's a really good way of looking at things. You're saying this is like a divorce. This is two, two parties that are, are fighting it out because they're, yeah. they're going in separate directions. But let's remember, why do I mention the divorce, you know, from a couple? Because um, Ukraine was part of the USS. You know, you know what it is? It was yeah, part of, of Russia. They split when the Soviet Union crashed and they, um, Russia left so many nuclear bombs within Ukraine, which Ukraine delivered all back to Russia in 2004 in their peace agreement that they will remain a neutral country, blah, 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 blah. NATO happened, Putin got upset, and shit happens. I mean, it, it, this is war. Let's, let's, let's help. Okay, let's put it in an easy way for people to understand out there. Again, what Russia is doing is bad. They are bombing the fuck out of a country which is full of civilians. If other countries are at war, what happens? They, they attack the airports, they attack mm. the military bases, they attack the ministries. I've seen difference. I've seen blocks of flats blown up. I've, I've heard stories from people living in those blocks of flats that tanks were just shooting at them, you know? Okay, you could say maybe they were snipers in that building shooting at the tanks and then the tanks responded. It's a never-ending story. 
let's give it a very easy way for people to understand it. Russia and Cuba are good friends, correct? You understand that, yeah? yeah? So let's say um, Russia says, okay, listen, I'm going to have a huge military base on Cuba. I'm going to point all the missiles I have on Cuba towards America. Example. What would America do? Think about it. I'm imagining... Uh, they would blow the fuck out of, of course Cuba. They, they would. would flatten it. Because America would never accept Russian missiles on their doorstep. So this is the exact same thing that's happening in, in Ukraine. It's simple. Putin... Okay, Putin is who he is, okay? He could be a madman, he could be eccentric, you know? But when you understand his mentality, he's coming from a Russian background, he's coming from, you know, you know how it is. It, it's, it's a different mentality from Europe. But th you know? This is what we do, and you've talked about this when we talked about uh, North African countries that you've been in or Middle Eastern countries that you've been in, that we project our society, our viewpoint our way of looking at things onto other cultures that don't necessarily think the same way or have the same yeah. histories that we do and that's where it starts to get complicated yeah, exactly because we say we're the west this is how it should be done and that's yeah. not the case when you go back to for example iraq afghanistan it's all the way the west wanted them to be yeah just let them be you know i have i always had this this reasoning if you would have let them be You'd have had no problems with them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, but that is again. We always think we know best in the yeah, West. Yeah, but this is my opinion again. Well, let me ask you because it is your opinion, and it's one thing again. Okay, go. Simple, because I don't want to make portray that Russia is right or Ukraine is right. No one is right. Okay, no one has a right of attacking another country. Let's start with that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And no one has a right to attack civilians because there's no need to attack civilians. Yeah, but I think from both sides, they need to calm down and like end this. It, it's it's waste of lives. Two questions for you. Why not three? No, because I've got a third after that. <laughs> but for now, two questions. Why attacking civilians? Why is Russia attacking the civilians? As you said, normally war is based around attacking military bases, airports, disabling the country that way. Why in this instance attacking civilians? I wouldn't know. Simple. Fair enough. I mean, let's be frank. This is a different war. This is a war of the people. I've never seen women with machine guns fighting a war. You know, you've had people come in from all sides of the of, of Earth <laughs> fighting this war against Russia. You give them machine guns and going, let's fight, let's fight. So you've seen women coming in to fight. This is a, a war of people against a huge military, which is Russia. So maybe the people are armed and the Russians are shooting the people. I don't know. Again. But I've seen people shot on the streets on their bikes. You know, I've seen the cars with children written on it, which was blown up. Again, if I could answer that, I, could, I, I would. But well, I then I'm going to ask you another difficult question, Renee. You still have to answer the second question. The, the, this is the second question that is going to be equally as difficult. And I'm asking for your opinion. I want to just caveat that. But my opinion does not matter, truly. I'm going to ask you a question anyway. Don't be difficult. Um, the question I'm going to ask you is that you mentioned back there everybody needs to chill the hell out. In your opinion, yeah. how does this get resolved? How, how does this end? Because we've seen the, all the countries across the world saying, don't allow Russian sports people to come to events and don't allow this and let's, let's shut down their ships and... 
we're still reliant on Russia. We're still taking their fuel. We're still taking all of that. We're taking what is convenient, convenient yeah. for us. What's the answer? Because it, to me, it just seems there is no answer. There is no answer except from diplomacy. If these things are unsorted out around the table, it will never end. Simple. This is we're not. This is not an Afghan, Iraq, or you know, Middle East war where it's very, very, very complex. Although Ukraine, Russia is complex, it is not that complex when you think about it. You know, things can be fixed around the table. That's my belief. But again, as you know, um, people fight with military bombs falling. They need to show their power by. You know. I spoke to you on I think it was a Saturday evening, and you were on the refugee bus coming yeah, back. Yeah. Sirens kicked off, and you, you we were chatting, and you said, "Nope, the sirens have gone." You know, and I, I was left to kind of imagine what that scenario was like. As you are now out of that situation, what is the single, lasting, impression, the single lasting, most vivid memory that you're taking away from this well, experience? Well, none of whatever we've discussed so far. The something which will remain with me forever is. Um, kids being pulled out from under the soil. That will, that will stay with me forever. When you have the French investigators digging manually with their spades to look where the, the mass graves are, and you see them pulling out a body, which is a kid, from under the soil, yeah, that's, that's quite something. This is what you mentioned when the we smell. were talking. You said these kids are the same age as mine. Yeah, yeah, and the smell of the bodies is just, it's incredible. You know, okay, for people who have maybe not been to war and they say, I don't know what it's like, what do you see? It, you smell, you smell death everywhere. And it's, it's, it's shocking because I was walking down, down, down my road um, just literally 12 hours ago and I smelled the smell and I know it's a dead cat or a dead dog because that's the smell of death. Now, when you go to a war zone, this is the smell in the villages because there's bodies still inside the rubble. But when you go to the mass grave, when you're actually working a mass grave, that is different. You have a pile of maybe, I think it was 61 bodies removed from one mass grave. The majority of them being families, women, kids. And it's, it's something which will stay with me forever. Which leads me to my final question. Rene, we've spoken about this before and I've asked you before, how do you live with what you've seen and experienced? Tough question. I don't know. Sometimes it affects me a lot, sometimes it doesn't. So in the past, it, is, it has affected me a lot. So Libya had literally destroyed my sleep for many weeks. When I came back from Libya, I couldn't sleep for many, many weeks because I kept imagining. You know, you see the human figure as it is, you know. And then when you see what is done to them in a war zone, the way they are killed, it changes how you look at the body. So that affected me a lot. Um, yeah, I do get difficulty sleeping sometimes. I, we've spoken about this in the past, you know, I suffer from lots of anxiety. I even take medication to calm down my anxiety, so it's nothing to be ashamed of. I actually talk about it a lot. And being an anxious person and seeing these things, it doesn't help. <laughs> you know, you know, when you're anxious, you think a lot, you're an overthinker. So sometimes you get to sleep, you get to bed, actually you're trying to sleep and you, your mind just kicks in. And you start thinking, 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 and you cannot sleep. For example, the first night when I came back from, uh, from Kiev, uh, my girlfriend told me, you woke up screaming. And I said, oh, okay, sorry. 
and I don't remember it. I usually do. I usually wake up and think, oh, like, like you have a nightmare or something. I don't remember it. You know, your mind is an amazing part of your, your, your body. It's, it's amazing. Your mind can process the most amazing things. Some people digest them well. Some people stay with, it affects them for the rest of your life. The biggest difficulty I have is going back to work. So, for example, I've had an event where I was, in, I was shooting the Libya war and 24 hours later, I'm actually shooting the, um, an MTP red carpet. How do you go from the deadliest to the safest place? How do you go to the most horrific to the most amazing place? Or from the poorest to the richest? You know? And same thing with, with, with Kiev. I mean, 52-hour trains and buses after Kiev, I'm, I'm in a wedding. You said the brides were worried that you weren't going to yeah, turn up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I always turn up somehow. Um, <laughs> but that is the struggle. Because it is 52 hours, there's a good space. But those 52 hours, you're doing fuck all. You're sitting down on a train waiting for time to pass. You're sleeping on the train station waiting for the next train. You're sitting on a bus with people. Time goes by so slow. What happens? Your mind starts to think. You're suddenly back in Malta, you sleep for six hours, shower, charge up your batteries, off to the wedding. How does your mind flip from one side to the other so quickly? It doesn't. Knowing the anxiety, knowing that there is a price to pay for what you do, yeah. will you ever stop doing it? Of course not. This is what makes me feel alive. So, no. You know, I, I only met my girlfriend seven months ago. And... It's, it's weird because, like, I've never felt so close to anyone in my life. So it was the first time I was actually scared to be somewhere because of her. It never happened to me before. So, like, okay, people tell me you have kids, you have to come back. There's always a reason to come back because you have your kids, you have to protect them, you have to give them their future and all that. But it was never my priority, I have to admit, because this is what I do and my kids know it. You know, I'd rather die literally on my knees you know, then spend the rest of my life on my feet doing what I don't want to do. So my girlfriend gave me this cross at the airport. And the cross was her dad's before he passed away. And she gave it to me and with tears in her eyes, she said, okay, listen, this cross means a lot to me. This was in my father's hand when he passed away. I'm giving you this, okay? This is your responsibility to bring it back to me. So I stuck it in the back of my phone. So each time, you're going you're gonna to cry. I'm going to cry. Ready, Rosano, you're making me cry. Jesus Christ, Trudy. <laughs> and each time I'm messaging her, um, my fingers are on the cross, you know, so I could relate. I'm coming back to give you this cross. And it's the first thing I did when she came to hug me at the airport. In my hands, I had the cross, and I told you I'm coming back. So these... These are stories, I think, who make you who you are, who define you. It's not about just going to war, you know. It's about coming back to the people you love, sharing stories with the world, and let the truth always prevail, you know. Rena, I know there's absolutely no point in me saying don't ever change because what you do is really important because you're never going to change. But I'm really okay. grateful that you are who you are, that you do what you do, and I thank you for sharing these stories today with me. you have no more me. questions? Um, that's it. Brilliant, so you won't cry. No more crying. <laughs> thank you. Cheers, dude. That's it.